The first question is, whenever the subject of reincarnation, near-death experiences, channeling, etc. comes up, teachers here at Suan Mok say that they are not interested in such things or that such things are not important. Yet Dhamma encourages study and investigation of all that is Dhamma to see things as they really are. Perhaps if we understood not-self as a higher self that is not separate from anything and therefore always changing, we could begin to see the benefit of studying these things. I don't profess to have an answer, but I think it's important not to ignore these important subjects so that we can see the way things are. Could you comment on this? When we speak about reincarnation, we sh must understand that there are two meanings to the word. The first meaning of reincarnation is in people language, the way that ordinary people speak. In this way of speaking, reincarnation means that there is a physical death. One dies and is put in a coffin and then gets buried or cremated. And then that same thing is reborn, born into another body. So reincarnation in the ordinary sense means the death of a physical body and then something being born again in another physical body. However, <clears throat> in Dhamma language, reincarnation has a different meaning. It has nothing to do with physical death. It simply means the rebirth of the ego, of the self-concept in the mind whenever ignorance stirs up dependent origination. If you're speaking of some physical death and then physical birth and then physical death and then physical birth, that's not really any particular problem. If there's physical death and then some birth in an, or reincarnation in another body, incarnation in another body, then the same problems, the same kind of problems will exist. And they have to be dealt with in the same way that we deal with our problems right here and now. So there's nothing really strange or extraordinary if there is some kind of physical rebirth or reincarnation. However, if we speak in terms of Dhamma, in terms of the mind, there is reincarnation every time that the concept I, the me concept, the ego, arises in the mind. And this happens many, many times not only in a lifetime, but in a day, this ego can get reincarnated many, many times. So don't, don't say that there's no reincarnation. There is, and it's happening very often. And whenever this reincarnation of ego occurs in the mind, then we must deal with it. It's not a matter of the future, but a matter of the present to 
to be dealt with properly. Even better, if we practice correctly, it won't be reincarnated. And then the problems it brings won't, won't develop. So our task is to practice correctly here and now so that there is, so this constant reincarnation of egos won't, won't happen. So we need to understand there are two meanings to the word reincarnation. The physical materialistic meaning existed before Buddhism was widely taught before the Buddha appeared. But in the Buddha's teaching, the, there is the reincarnation of ego, which is the central issue, the mental or spiritual reincarnation of the delusive ego concept in the mind. The teaching or idea of physical reincarnation existed in India before the Buddha's time. And it's possible that it existed even earlier, possibly in Egypt and elsewhere. Some doctrine of a self, a soul, or whatever that is reincarnated many, many times. In fact, there's nothing special about this kind of teaching. However, and it has certain benefits, however, it cannot end suffering. Dukkha cannot be quenched by this kind of understanding. But it still, it has benefits. There are certain moral benefits to this doctrine. A belief in reincarnation can be used to encourage people to do good and to avoid doing bad. But belief in this will not end dukkha. In the Buddha's teaching, the emphasis is on the mental spiritual birth of ego, of self, of egoism in the mind. And this is where the problems occur. Every time there is this kind of birth, there is a problem, there is heaviness, there is burning, there is dukkha. Now, when a child is born from the mother's womb, that physical birth isn't yet the problem. The newborn child doesn't experience dukkha. It's only later when the child is able to form the concept of me, to cling to me and mine, that the ego is born. And it's this birth that's the starting of dukkha. This is when the dukkha happens. So the, the end of dukkha can only come through an understanding of this mental or spiritual rebirth. So this is the rebirth or reincarnation that needs to be understood. This is the one that is necessary and important. Even if you have some evidence of one person being reincarnated many times, even if one could go and prove that there has been somebody reincarnated. It doesn't really change anything. This knowledge might be interesting, 
but it isn't of any real help because it, it can't be used to quench dukkha. The, this, the problem is one of the mind, not one of the body. So the understanding that will end dukkha is the understanding of mental reincarnation. This, the, the thing about physical reincarnation, there are actually a number of passages talking about this in the, the Pali scriptures of Theravada Buddhism. However, we suspect that these are Hindu influences rather than um, things proper to the Buddha's teaching itself. Because what the Buddha focused on is our problems arise when there is egoistic birth, when there is this birth in the mind of ego, of self and selfishness. This is where the problems arise, and so this is where we must solve the problem. To prevent the reincarnation of this kind of birth which happens through ignorance, through attachment, the birth of egoism, or at least to control this birth so it doesn't become dukkha. This is the only way we can absolutely quench dukkha. It can't be done by believing or trying to understand physical reincarnation. Now some people having looked at some of the Buddhist scriptures, see that there are numerous references to this person being reborn as this or as that, or maybe being reincarnated a number of times. And this leads them to some confusion about what the Buddha taught, or that they take this to be the essence of the Buddhist teaching. One should be very careful here, however, we believe that these, these passages um, which are claimed to be the Buddha are there for the sake of moral purposes. However, these, these teachings are not what is called Paramatta Dhamma or the supreme level of Dhamma. These moral teachings are on the ordinary level. They're for those people who cannot understand supreme dhamma or the highest level of dhamma. On the highest level of dhamma, the Buddha spoke very clearly, unequivocally, that there is no self that could go and get reborn like that. There's no atta or atman. There's no vinyan or spirit of that sort which goes traveling on from this life to the next. The Buddha made this point absolutely clear on the level of Paramatta Dhamma. But there are people who can understand that, and so it is necessary to have the more ordinary and easy to understand level of teaching. When people truly believe in reincarnation, then this will encourage them to do good and to not do bad.
So that's necessary, but it won't end dukkha. Be careful about things like the Jataka stories, the so-called rebirth stories. Some people get take these too seriously, where there's stories about a certain person being reborn over and over again, reincarnated in many, many bodies. This is these are these stories are necessary, these kind of fables as moral teachings for people who can understand a more psychological or Dhamma approach. So these things are necessary, but we should not be confused by them. In the commentaries and sub-commentaries on the original scriptures, there are tons of references to, to rebirth or reincarnation. They're full of them, such as this puppy went and got born as that Brahmin, or this, this hen is born as that female um, ogre, that ogress, and so on. These kind of references are there. They're often put in the mouth of the Buddha. But what needs to be understood is these kind of ideas were being taught to people who already believed them. The audience already firmly believed in these things. And the purpose of all these reincarnation stories is a moral one. But it's really not, in the long run, so useful because none of these stories will quench dukkha. Dukkha arises out of ignorance, through clinging, in our minds there arises the egoistic concept and every time this happens there is dukkha. Every birth of ego brings dukkha and there is no avoiding this. Since the sole purpose of Buddhism is the ending of dukkha, the quenching of dukkha, then this, this is the Buddhist teaching on rebirth. For it to be a Buddhist teaching, it needs to be directly relevant to the quenching of dukkha. And so, we need to be interested in this mental or spiritual reincarnation of the ego in the mind. In summary, the kind of physical birth or physical reincarnation, understanding of that cannot quench dukkha. But the kind of reincarnation of ego in the mind through ignorance, the ignorant rebirth of ego in the mind, understanding that can quench dukkha. With that knowledge, we can quench dukkha here and now. We can end dukkha right now. The next question is, how can the Buddhist approach contribute to dealing with environmental problems. This is a totally different kind of question. It's a worldly, social, or political question. <clears throat> the Buddhism teaches unselfishness. Buddhism is teaching unselfishness. When a person or when people are unselfish, 
then they won't destroy the forests, they won't pollute the, the air in the rivers, they won't go throwing garbage around and living in, in, in indulgent and exploitative, dangerous ways. All the problems in this world, whether environmental, social, political, or whatever, come from selfishness. When people stop being selfish, they will stop acting selfishly, and they won't create these problems. This applies to problems like drugs, crime, mental illness, um, political exploitation, chauvinism, and various other forms of social and political problems. The root of all these prob social external problems is in selfishness. If we can eliminate the selfishness, then all these problems can be solved. Just one thing, unselfishness, can solve all problems in this world. Problems on the social level, political level, economic problems, um, and all the other ecological problems in all of them can be solved just with unselfishness. Do you think that the world has any chance to survive? You know that there is war now, that there is hunger in the developing countries. Is there a chance for the world to survive? Yes, there is a chance for survival. The thing that will allow the world to survive is what we were just talking about, unselfishness. Our chance for survival is to live unselfishly and to encourage others to do so. This, this is the only chance for survival. Manipulating or changing political and economic structures isn't enough. We need to use the Dhamma to end selfishness. There won't be any problems left once there is no selfishness. The next question is, could you please speak in more detail about the fruits of Dhamma practice which are benefits developed for the sake of others. We summarize the benefits, the results of Dhamma practice as being two basic things. One is the cool peace or the peaceful coolness in one's own heart. And the second is benefits for others being able to help others. When one has practiced Dhamma and, and transcended self, one therefore is totally free of selfishness. Then one's own heart is cool and peaceful. And when there is no more selfishness, then we can truly care about others. When there's still self, we care mainly about the self and only view others in terms of self. But when there's no more self and selfishness, then we can really begin to be concerned about others and to help others. When there's no more living selfishly, then we can live for this sake and benefit 
of others exclusively. When there is no more selfishness, one will help others automatically. Life can't sit still. The nature of life is movement. So we can't sit still. Once our personal, personal matters are dealt with, then it's automatic that one will give attention to the problems of others. I then ask, well, how do we help others? How does one then help others? The way, however one has helped oneself, one helps others in the same way. Whatever way one has ended one's own problems, one uses, one helps others to do the same so that they can find the same coolness and peace. The aim or goal of every religion is to help emancipate oneself and then to help emancipate others. Salvation or liberation for oneself and for others is the goal of all religions. So to the degree that one can save or liberate oneself, to that degree one helps others to do the same. The 13 basic lessons of Anapanasati each describe doing something. Yet there is a perception that people don't do anything collectively and or individually. Things just seem to happen. I'm sorry, it's not clear what the question is. This seems to be a statement. Would you like to clarify what you're asking? Whoever asked this, this one? We'll go to the... If you want to re-ask that one so I understand the question, feel free to do so. If we die before realizing true detachment, how are we ever to reach Nibbana? If we die, if this life ends, without having realized Nibbana, then we have wasted this life. We haven't really done anything of value with this life. We've wasted it by not realizing or receiving the highest thing there is to find in life. This, this self which is not self, this self which is not self then hasn't received or realized the, the best, the highest thing there is in life. And then this life of that self which is not a self has been wasted. It hasn't gotten what it was intended to get. It hasn't realized what it was supposed to realize. We, this can be taken as totally ordinary, that people will live their entire life without 
really getting anything out of it is quite common nor most common. By the way, if I'm talking and you want to ask a question, come towards the microphone so we know to give you a time to ask. <laughs> Next question. Um, can one practice Dhamma while doing the following? Enjoying sex, enjoying good food, striving to lead an honorable life. These situations can be lessons for Dhamma practice. One can, while enjoying these things or while receiving um, the pleasures and happiness of these things, one can study how that if we attach to any of these things, to the pleasure or to the doing or experiencing of these things, then that thing will, will bite. If we cling to sex, it will bite. If we cling to delicious food, it will bite. If we cling to our honor and reputation, it will bite. So we can use these as opportunities to learn that if one doesn't attach to these things, then they don't bite. So Buddhism doesn't forbid you to do these things, but one studies them, one uses all these opportunities as lessons in order to understand how attachment bites and how non-attachment doesn't bite. So the message isn't that you can't um, participate in such activities. The message is just that we need to do these things without getting bit by them. And the way to avoid getting bit is to not attach to them as me and mine. One must look even further and more deeply to see that to spend time enjoying things is tiring. It's a useless waste of energy. It's better to not bother enjoying things. That when there's, when we're not enjoying things, when there's not this effort to enjoy, then that is much more peaceful and we don't waste our energy. One ought to see this also. This is partly what we meant the other day when we spoke about being above positive and negative, to be above good and evil, to not, not be clinging to enjoyment as positive, to be above all these things is the best. Um, next question, do ideals and beliefs have any place in Dhamma practice? For example, ideals about what kind of person we would like to be, belief in the goodness of people, belief in Dhamma, 
the ideals that led some of us here, etc. Ideals are necessary, but they must be ideals which are not wrong. If our ideals are wrong, it will just bring lots of problems. In Buddhism, this matter of ideals is called samaditi. It means to have the right ideals. And then when one's ideals are correct, then correct beliefs will follow from that. So you need to search for the right ideals, the ideals that will bring you only to peace, to the quenching of dukkha, rather than ideals that will bring on more problems. Ideals are necessary, but they must be right ideals. And then um, belief follows from these ideals. Okay, um, there's probably enough questions <laughs> by now. Um, did you want to ask one? Um, oh, uh, there are many different spiritual practices now, and even uh, several forms of Buddhism, as well as many teachers. Um, uh, how would uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa recommend choosing among the spiritual choices, the types of Buddhism, and the different teachers? Um, this is a this is a genuine question. This is one that touches on something that's very important. First thing is to understand that all religions aim to help humanity. All the religions are trying to help human beings. Next, one must realize that human beings haven't just kind of existed all at once, all in the same place but that human beings have lived in different times and different places. Therefore, each religion has occurred or arisen in order to help the people of a specific time and place. Or even within each religion, the different schools or sects or whatever denominations have arisen in order to respond to the needs of people in a particular time and place. For example, and there are people, people are of many different kinds. There's Asians, Europeans, Americans. There's people in the north, people in the south, and so on. And it's also important to recognize that people differ in intelligence. There are people who are quite stupid, people who are just a little foolish, people who are intelligent, people who are less intelligent. And so each religion responds to these a, a particular level of intelligence. And so we must be careful not to confuse those. If you look in any religious passage or spiritual teaching, in each particular teaching, there's a kind of reasoning or a principle that's being pointed out 
in that passage. And if you understand the principle, then you can see whether it is appropriate for you, for your situation, for your intelligence, and so on. So, in summary, all religions aim to help people um, to end suffering. This is the purpose of all religions. However, because people have lived in different times and places, the religions differ according to the times and places and according to the, the different ranges of intelligence in, in cultures and in people. And then so one chooses the spiritual teachings that once one understands the principle, the thing is you have to understand the principle of the teaching the natural causes and effects of that teaching. And then you will know what is appropriate for you to practice. Don't worry about being a Buddhist, a Christian, a Hindu, or any of that. You don't have to choose to be a Buddhist. You don't have to convert to Islam or any of that. That's a way too superficial way of looking at it. But just understand the principle the natural causes and conditions of each teaching, and then you'll know of whether or not it applies to you. In Buddhism, there is only one principle, the principle of cutting all attachment to me and mine. This is the principle of Buddhism, and it is the same in all the schools and forms of Buddhism whether in China, Japan, Tibet, Korea, or wherever. This is the single principle of Buddhism. However, when Buddhism has gone into those different countries, it has been necessary to explain this principle in ways appropriate to those countries. Sometimes it's necessary to kind of borrow some of the some of the culture, or some of the ways of speaking, some of the imagery and beliefs from each of those countries in order to make the teaching more accessible or more familiar. But, and so Buddhism, different forms of Buddhism, the Buddhism in different countries may explain things differently than the way they're being explained here. But Although the method of explanation may be different, the principle is always the same. Otherwise, it, it isn't really Buddhism. Now, a further thing that's even more important is one must consider whether the intention is to lead an individual to liberation or to lead everyone to lib liberation. If the intention is to help individuals to liberation, the teaching will take one form. If the intention is to lead everyone, then the teaching takes another form. And so this is the difference between Theravada Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism. However, the intention, they're both both approaches have good intentions. The intention to 
help people get free of dukkha. About 40, 50 years ago, there were lots of books floating around on Buddhism in Thailand, Buddhism in Sri Lanka, Buddhism in Burma, Buddhism in China, Buddhism in Japan, and so on. But when we read these books, it was mainly about the culture of each particular country, Thai culture, Sri Lankan culture, Japanese culture, and whatever. None of these books were really about Buddhism itself, but they were about the cultural beliefs, the customs, the traditions, the superstitions, the um, kind of occult practices of those different countries which Buddhism had to intermix with. That was the state of affairs 40, 50 years ago. All these books really just about culture and external matters, not things, not books about Buddhism itself. Now though we've gotten over our foolishness and a lot we've been able to remove a lot of those coverings, those cultural and external things which have been kind of surrounding Buddhism. We've been able to get rid of those and focus directly on Buddhism itself, which is the same in all places. There is just one Buddhism to destroy the stupidity that there is self, to destroy the um, ignorance or foolishness that there is self. In Thailand, Buddhist practice seems to include what can only be regarded as superstitious belief, such as setting free birds to take away ill fortune, making offerings and burning incense in the hope of gaining worldly success. How is this reconciled with the practice of Dhamma as taught here as Suan Mok? As we've said, the sole purpose or principle of Buddhism is getting rid of and destroying self. Now these various things that you've mentioned are more a matter of Thai practice than Buddhist practice. You need to understand that what people in Thailand are doing has many sources other than Buddhism. They are the ancient Thai beliefs that go back to way before Buddhism arrived. And then there are Brahmanistic and Hindu influences, as well as Confucianist and others. Throughout the long history of Thai culture, there have been all these different things. People in Thailand, like anywhere else, come in many different forms with different levels of intelligence, different inclinations, habits, and so on. And so to, to please all the different kinds of people, there have been many different beliefs and practices developed. Some of them come from ancient Thai um, beliefs, animism and things like that. Others come from 
Brahmanism and Hinduism, and some come from Buddhism. In Thai culture, these have all been blended together, and many people mistakenly call this Buddhism. But as we've pointed out, all these kind of admixtures are not Buddhism, they're just the external trappings, not Buddhism itself. If you understand this point, you won't need to ask this question. And the true orthodoxy of Buddhism is simply destroying self, eliminating all vestiges of me and mine. And so one needs to separate all those traditional practices, observances, and commitments from the religion. And then one will find the the true religion. This problem happens, in fact, to all religions. All the world's religions have this problem of all kinds of things getting stuck onto the basic core of religion. So learn to separate the two. Remove the unessentials and you will find the true religion. Actually, there is just one religion, the religion of nature. If we do this, this happens. If we do this, this happens. If we do that, that happens. This is the religion of nature and knowing what to do so that dukkha doesn't arise, knowing what to do so that dukkha is thoroughly quenched. This is the natural religion. It is safer, more correct, um, more scientific, more straightforward. This religion of nature is the one true religion. The laws of dependent origination, the law of conditionality, which you've been learning about at the meditation center, these belong to nature. Don't think that these belong to Buddhism. The Buddha or that they belong to the Buddha. The Buddha just discovered these things. He doesn't own them. They don't belong to Buddhism or the Buddha. They belong only to nature. Morning. I'm the one who asked the first question this morning. And I wish in retrospect I hadn't put the word reincarnation in there. Um, I see again the importance of formulating a question. The question really has to do with how do we explain things that occur um, without using something beyond non-self. Let me give an example. Um, It's pretty well known that there are things that occur to people such as finding out the death of a loved one without being told. Um, We're beginning to study this more and more as time goes on. And how can we explain these phenomenon without an idea of something beyond this plane? And is this then idea of a higher self, or call it what you will, the words aren't important, 
um, is it in conflict, really, with the Buddhist idea of not-self? Do you understand my question? It feels real hard to formulate it, but is I it think, in conflict? I think I can get it. <clears throat> we, we could... Okay, we can accept that there is reincarn reincarnation. Therefore, we need to destroy the individual. We need to get rid of the individual or thing that gets reincarnated. Whatever it is getting reincarnated, that's what we need to get rid of. Okay. The basic, the fundamental issue is this issue of the egoism that creates dukkha in ending that. As for some of the other matters that you've brought up, if you want to explain them, then you could explain them according to the flow of mind or the stream of mind. One needn't refer to any kind of self. The stream of mind, the stream of consciousness, exists or flows without there needing to be a self. As we've said before, there's just body and mind. There's no third thing. There's no self. But through the, the stream of mind, it's possible to know distant things. Other things can be done by the stream of mind. Some matters concerning the mind are so strange that they're unexplainable. Some things that happen, or some of these mental things are impossible to explain. For example, one friend in one country is experiencing dukkha, and then a friend in another country can know that the friend is experiencing dukkha. This, this thing can happen. It's, it's rather common. But still, the, the form of dukkha is basically the same. But the essential point is not how this happens. What matters is this person is suffering. This person is in dukkha. This kind of um, ability to know that a distant friend is in dukkha, this is very common. This has happened to myself two or three times. Um, a friend was suffering quite a bit. And I knew this. It was kind of like an image or a dream. The form of the suffering in each case may not be the same. But what matters is that person is suffering. This is known by the stream of mind, not by some atta soul or something like that. Um, as for this thing about higher self, or whatever it's called, whether it conflicts with the principle of anatta or not, it's best not to speak of some higher self. It's better just to speak of the mind which is developing itself higher and higher. Better to just speak in terms of the mind and not bring in the word self, because the word self can only lead to confusion. 
So just speak of the mind that's training and developing higher and higher. Even if we use some terms, or some terms are used such as the supreme thing or the supreme being, be very careful not to understand these words in terms of self or being some kind of self. Just understand it in terms of the mind which is developing higher and higher. The highest development of the mind is the to be totally free of self. And so why bring in self or be careful about bringing self in to the, the discussion? This kind of problem or confusion exists quite a bit in India because India has received both the Hindu teaching and the Buddhist teaching. The Hindu teaching teaches some supreme self, but Buddhism doesn't teach that. And so people in India are speaking the languages of two religions, and sometimes they're intermixed. This can lead to confusion. For example, some people believed in the Supreme Self. They wanted to find the Supreme Self. And so when they talked to the Buddha, the Buddha said, well, practice Dhamma like this and this and you can, you will find the Supreme Self. So the people would use this language and the Buddha could, could, um, work appropriately with their way of speaking. And so those who want the Maha Ataman or the great, the great Atta, the great self, the supreme self, the highest self, whatever, he would say, well, then one must practice Dhamma like this. Instances like this appear in the Buddhist scriptures. If we remove all of these kinds of stories and concerns, then there remains just the one issue of quenching dukkha, ending dukkha. How are we going to end dukkha here and now? And then one must end the self. One must eliminate attaching to I and mine. Then it's, there's just one thing. It's very simple. If we remove this other stuff, this, the idea or the words about a higher self, these, this kind of idea is everywhere because it's just what people want. People feel that there is a self, that they've got a self, and they've wanted to be better. Everybody naturally wants a better self. And so this kind of thinking and talking is common everywhere. You'll find it in all religions, this wanting to have a better self, a higher self. If one wonders and worries whether this thing, this higher self exists or not, it will take up a lot of time. It's much um, more straightforward and efficient just to ask, how do we quench dukkha? How do we get free of dukkha?
in your first talk you said love is dukkha. You talked of love biting its owner. Is that always so? Please tell us more about love. A few words were left out. One should say, the love that is attached to as me or mine, that love bites its owner. The love that is attached to bites its owner. The same is true of non-love. Whether loving or not loving, if it's attached to as me or mine, it bites its owner. We shouldn't forget these words, attached to as me and mine. Don't forget that anything that is attached to as me and mine will bite its owner. Everything that we attach to or regard as being me and mine will bite its owner. Further, one can live with things, use things, eat things, be involved with things without attaching to them as me and mine, and then they don't bite their owner. Comparing Christianity and Buddhism, I see a lot of parallels. Now, if someone really practices being a Christian, a follower of Jesus, do you think in that, do you think that he can in that way end all suffering and reach coolness? Yes, and he will be a good Buddhist. He or she will be a good Buddhist as well by removing all atta, all self. This, this Christian will redeem him or herself by redeeming the atta, by getting rid of all self. Then that person is both a good Buddhist and a good Christian. One needn't commit suicide. You don't have to kill yourself. Just give up the concept of self. Redeem oneself by getting rid of. It isn't necessary to commit suicide. Jesus Christ demonstrated this principle to the greatest extreme so that even the biggest fool could understand the principle of sacrificing self. Here's a long one. I understand that the practice of anapanasati is the path which leads to non-concocting and the cessation of dukkha. As a beginner, however, my understanding is still intellectual, and while I have become aware that there is a state of non-self, of non-concocting, I find that I am still stirred up by positive and negative, and my concocting mind is very strong. I don't know how long it will take me to develop to the point where I can be like the Arahant, where positive and negative still exist, but it won't concoct my mind. Do you have any suggestions for what I can do in my everyday life, along with continuing to practice anapanasati when I am confronted with my feelings of liking and disliking, of craving and aversion? First of all, <clears throat> we must understand that it's natural that some people will practice very quickly. Others will practice less quickly. 
Some will practice slowly, some very slowly, and some won't be successful at all. If one practices in the right way, it goes very quickly. If one practices less correctly, then it goes more slowly. We already mentioned the best way of practicing the other day. When in any situation, be aware that it's just the nervous system, that everything happening is just happening to and through the nervous system. There's no self, there's no atta, me, or ego at all. This approach is the most straightforward, it's the most direct to whether the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, or mind. Recognize that it's merely the nervous system functioning, that there's no self or atta involved. For example, when there's liking or loving, see that it's just a feeling conditioned by the nervous system. Don't see it as being some self that loves or is the lover, the liker. Just see it as something concocted by the nervous system. Walking without a walker is a good example of this lesson. What is the difference between the process of intellectual understanding and full enlightened realization? This, this is a matter of language. Um, native speakers of English will understand these words and their meaning better than I do. But the best I can do, or my understanding of intellect, is that intellect, the English word intellect means something that depends on reasoning. The intellect uses rational thought and reasoning to arrive at its understanding. And this can always go wrong. This is imperfect. However, if it's a matter of intuition, it doesn't depend on reasoning, on rational thinking and so on. And when we speak of intuitive realization or intuitive wisdom, then that's a matter that's above reasoning, above rational thought. One just knows directly without, without having to think about it. This is how we understand the words intellect and intuition, especially intuitive when we see intuition, we're meaning on the wisdom level, not just kind of emotional feelings or something. The conclusion that comes from the intellect, from reasoning, can still be wrong. But the conclusion that comes from intuitive wisdom can never be wrong. If it's wrong, then it's not intuitive wisdom. So if it's direct, immediate realization of something, can never be wrong. If it's wrong, it's not direct immediate realization. However, intellectual conclusions, rational conclusions can be wrong. Could you elaborate on the relationship between science and the spiritual path? 
within your teaching. The path in Buddhism is one that does not depend on belief or faith. One, it depends on experiencing things directly as they are, to realizing the facts of things, the realizing the causes, conditions, and results of those causes and conditions which exist in things. This is the path of Buddhism. It doesn't require belief, which is what science is about. Science is investigation of things without believing in anything, but just dealing with the natural facts of things. So the Buddhist path is a scientific path. If you want to have any belief or faith in Buddhism, it must come after there is this direct experience of the fact of things. When we know something, then we can believe in it. Three words that are used by science are quite useful. They're absolutely correct. The words experiment, research, and prove. If we use these three things correctly, then that will be very good for us. I was asking him if he wanted a question on love or war or what. He said, well, it's good to talk about war. Um, this war that's going on is happening because of selfishness on both sides. Because there's some kind of selfishness on both sides, there will be war. Even selfishness on one fight side can start a war. Here's a question. We talk a lot about peace and not harming even the smallest living being. Unfortunately, the world outside is not so peaceful as Suan Mok. Does Ajahn Buddhadasa think we can apply these rules on today's world when strong leaders terrorize millions of people? Can we overpower them in peaceful ways? and goodwill. I'll assume by rules you mean the, the Dhamma, um, the, the principles of Dhamma practice we've been talking about, prim primarily about not-self and unselfishness. If that's incorrect, please correct me. The basic principle, once again, is unselfishness. If there is unselfishness, then there won't be these problems. For example, the person mentioned goodwill or kindness, even genuine love, which in Buddhism is called metta. This is just a form of unselfishness. For there to be genuine love or goodwill, there must be unselfishness. Stop a minute and look. If everyone was unselfish in this world, we wouldn't require prisons. We wouldn't require mental hospitals. We wouldn't require um, religious institutions, monasteries, um, ashrams, and things like that. We wouldn't even require religion if there wasn't any selfishness. In short, if there's no selfishness, there's no need for religion. If there wasn't any selfishness, you wouldn't have to come to Suan Mok. Then I asked um, 
well, how will we use this approach to stop um, powerful politicians who aren't above using force to harm and oppress many, many people? He said, the problem is these kind of leaders are selfish and they don't know what selfishness is because they don't understand unselfishness, they must use force. They use very selfish methods. Then I asked, well, what can we ourselves do about some of these powerful late leaders? There are many of them in the world who enjoy using force. And he said, well, we don't, we ourselves don't have the power to teach them. Um, George Bush, Saddam Hussein, and all the other leaders of all your countries aren't listening to us. And so we don't have the power to teach them. If there was some organization such as the UN who would teach this, maybe the message would get across. However, the UN isn't very interested in this message. The UN doesn't seem to care the United Nations doesn't seem to care very much about unselfishness. All they seem to be encouraging is competition. And we'll just leave it at competition. It's kind of funny. God himself or herself wants that human beings will not be selfish. God himself wants us to be unselfish and he can't do anything about it. Even God can't stop us from being selfish. So what are we supposed to do? <laughs> and if, if God is too lazy to do anything about it, then we say, well, then God is selfish. So please help spread the word that if there is no selfishness, we won't need religion, we won't need monasteries and ashrams, churches and synagogues, we won't need prisons, mental hospitals, courts, or police, or armies, or any of that. Um, if there weren't, wasn't selfishness, we wouldn't need any of these things. Please help to spread the word. Nowadays, we're so selfish that we can't build prisons, courts, and mental hospitals fast enough. Our selfishness is so big and fast that we can't keep up trying to build the hospitals and courts and all these things to cope with the, the results of all our selfishness. This, all the material development, the technological progress that we worship so much these days, this just makes us more and more selfish. All of our development, our technology, our so-called progress, which we worship and honor, this just creates more and more opportunities for selfishness, just keeps making us more and more selfish. We use our intelligence, our science, not to solve human problems, but to create new ones by further firing selfishness. Most of our universities and Scientists spend their time thinking up new ways to promote selfishness. And so instead of really getting around to solving our problems, 
we just create bigger and bigger problems for ourselves. The result is then a world that's full of selfishness. But to cut matters short, even if other people don't care about this, even if other people are going to continue being selfish, then we ourselves are going to stop being selfish. We ourselves are going to practice unselfishness. If they want to be selfish, well, the hell with them. Let them. But we aren't going to be selfish anymore. If we aren't selfish, then who can kill us? There's no self to be killed. Okay, this is the last question. One more question. And that Buddhism uh, deals with psychological matters and uh, as and in the West we have a science called psychology. Uh, Move closer to the microphone. I, I, Buddhism deals with psychological matters, what we in the West call psychology. And we have a set of terms in, uh, in the West in, in, in this psychological science now, these are not always clear, and not everybody agree about the terms. But the term of self, if you would like to have a self, then have it be a self which is unselfish. The basic instinct of self, the basic self-instinct, which is in all living things, this is not selfish. And then develop this base basic instinct, the instinct to survive, the instinct to grow and develop. Develop this with higher and higher wisdom until there, till all selfishness is removed. Then, then we will have a psychology which is correct. If you want a self, have it be the self which is unselfish. Or, to put it most correctly, what this thing that you call self, see that it isn't really a self. What is called a self doesn't actually have the meaning or the reality of being a self. If there is that kind of self which is seen to actually be not self, then this is the highest wisdom and there is no selfishness. This kind of self in which there is no selfishness, from which comes no selfishness. This is what? This is correct psychology. Although this thing isn't a self, although it doesn't have any real self, it still has the wisdom, the intelligence within itself to solve problems. This this thing naturally has the intelligence it needs to deal with and solve any problem, although that intelligence is not solved. So we've used up more than two hours, so we'll call it quits at this time. Today it's been two and a half hours. We thank you for your great endurance.